Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and addict. As always, our mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms. The story of addiction and the road to recovery. We're not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step-based organizations or groups in any way. Today's episode, I have a very, very dear friend of mine on today. His name's Justin Frakes, and I want to welcome you to the show. Hey, how you doing, everybody? This is Justin Frakes. I got Justin here, and you know, this is a long time coming for me and him. You know, everything that we've been through, we were in prison together, and now we get to experience recovery together. And we're going to talk about the miracle of, of how we got to where we are today. But we've known each other for, for quite a long time. We actually met in 2018. And I, I, want to, I want to hear your take on this story, but I'm going to share from my perspective of the first time that we met. So I was living in uh, at Florence North Union. We were living in the Q huts over there. And the guy next to me had a big store. People used to come and get fronts on stores. And I remember one night we were sitting there. I think I was watching America's Got Talent. Right? I had my headphones on. If you've ever been to prison, you know you got headphones on. And all of a sudden, I see out of the corner of my eye, I see Justin come in. I don't know him yet. I've never talked to him. I've seen him moving around the yard. He's always out hustling, selling brownies. He does tattoo work. He's out there just getting money all the time, getting high the whole nine. I already know what it is. I'm in recovery at this point. And uh, he comes up to my cube and he, he says, hey, bro, you interested in buying a diamond ring? I said, a diamond ring? <laughs> I think you tried to tell me some clarity on it. This, yeah. is, this is an F quality clarity diamond. It's real deal. I already checked it out. How much? What'd you say? hundred bucks. hundred bucks. Give me a hundred bucks for it. I'm like, dude, you're tripping, dude. That shit ain't real. Um, and then he left, you know, and, uh, he actually had done a, um, tattoo on my neighbor. He did a t- shout out Ty Pittman. Um, he did a tattoo on my neighbor and, uh, it came out really, really good. He actually did many tattoos on him. Um, and I remember I wanted to get some tattoo work done and I knew that I seen his work and I knew I wanted to get it done for him. And so I approached him and he's like, yeah, I'll get, I'll do it for you. I'll come through. Don't even worry about it. I paid him up front. Then I get you a brownie kit. Yeah. So I absolutely got- paid me up front paid you up front. I actually didn't have the actual stuff he needed. I went, stored it out, found every piece that he needed to make these brownies so he could turn that 10, 15, 20 bucks into like, what, a hundred? Yeah. About a hundred bucks. And uh, anyway, so I remember I go over there. Finally, it's our scheduled appointment. We got the point man. We got the needle sharpened. We're ready to go. And I remember I go over there and this dude, he's got snot bubbles. He's looking real under the weather. And I'm in recovery sponsoring guys teaching the drug class on the yard and the whole nine. And I tell him, dude, are you all right, dude? You you don't look so good. Told him I'm dope sick. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I'm dope sick. And I'm like, you need another 10 to get well, brother, because you're not tattooing on me dope sick. That's what's not happening. I'll I'll shoot you another 10. He said, hold on. I'll be right back, brother. Went in the back of the of the hut. You were in Baker Pods. You were in the back of the run. You went back there, got right real quick, came over. You know, did basically did the electric slide down the down the walkway because he was ready to roll at that point, and he laid down a good tattoo. And I remember you were tattooing on me, and you know we were talking a little bit, and I told you I was in recovery and the meetings on the yard, and and kind of just left it at that. And uh, so we got to know each other during that period of time, and we, you know, he did a, several other tattoos on me over this period of time as well. And we just got to know each other, man. And uh, eventually that led to recovery. But every single journey starts somewhere. So it's important to see, you know, that's what's so important about working with other alcoholics is we get to understand that we all come from different areas, but the same manifestations of our illness, the alcoholic mentality, it's the same experiences, maybe a little different, 
but for the most part, they're the same. So today I want to get into his life, his story, and how he got to where he is today. And I'm telling you right now, when part two comes out and you get to see where he's at today and the miracles in his life, it's just undeniable what happens when you go all the way into recovery and find some type of path and go after it like your life depends upon it. So do you remember that time though first when we first met? Well, do you remember what that was like for you? When I remember what it was like. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I could say about it is for sure I was strung out on the prison yard. You know, I did tattoo, so I made money all over the yard. So I was able to pay for a habit. Um, and I was able to maintain staying high every single day. Um, the one thing about you and I meeting was you never forced recovery upon me. You never talked down on me because I was using and strung out on the yard. You never treated me any different. Um, you just told me, hey, I'm in recovery. I'm sober today. This is what I do. Then I started getting curious, right? I started asking you questions about it. I'd show up a little bit more. I didn't stop using at this point, but I'd start to come around a little more. And I started to see some of the guys on the yard that were in recovery, you know, and I was getting high with some of them dudes. And I got to see the changes in them. And I was like, man, I've been struggling with addiction my whole entire life. Maybe they know something that I don't know. Yeah, and that's how it works. We start to see guys. It was the same experience for me. Shout out Josh S, Adam T. And I seen these guys, Ronnie. And I see these guys, and I remember what they were like when they were getting high. And I see them now, just like it talks about the end of the doctor's opinion. They become visual proof. I know it's them, but from there, all resemblance ends. And I think to myself, well, I know how bad they, they were. And now look at the way they are today. If they can do it, I can do it. And that was the same sort of thing you were experiencing. Um, but let's kind of talk about, let's start from the beginning and kind of get into that. So you were born in California um, and, you know, I actually had the privilege of sponsoring you. So I know a little bit about you, a whole lot about you. Um, and uh, you didn't have a chance from the beginning. So why don't you share what it was like, um, how it all started? So um, I was born in Riverside, or I mean, excuse me, in Victorville, California, March 14th, 1983. Um, I came out addicted to crack cocaine. Um and at that point, I came out three pounds, four ounces. I mm. almost didn't make it. You know, I was in an incubator in the hospital for about a month. And, you know, it was, that's just what it was. Um, everybody around me, my family was on drugs, right? Uh, I came out born addicted to drugs. So that, that was kind of like the norm for me. Most, a lot of people grow up in a normal home with a normal family and that just wasn't the case for me. So from, what was what was the family dynamic like in the house? The family dynamic. So, you know, it was hard. Um, I remember, so I don't remember this because I was two or three years old at the time, but my aunts told me stories that she found me down the street playing by myself on the side of the road while my parents were high out of their mind, right? Um, and she would bring me back home. I can remember at an early age, uh, I knew my parents were high, especially my dad. He would do things weird with his hands and thumbs, and I knew they were high, but I didn't know they were on drugs because I was too young to know they were on drugs. I just knew something was wrong, and at that point, I would color on the walls. Uh, I would do things to get me in trouble, even if they were spanking me, right, just to get attention because I was, my parents weren't present in my life at that point. 
Yeah. And so when you don't, I mean, we're talking two, three years old, you're, you know, you're down the street, no supervision. And it's very common, man, when you grow up in a household like that and, uh, you know, you act out just to get attention, um, getting spanked or getting beat or getting those things when you're younger, when you grow up in an environment like that, um, that's better than no attention. And I know it was like that for you. And so when we we all talk about, you know, our childhood and how it plays a part and some people like myself come from a great home um, and I didn't have those issues and I wasn't abused and I didn't experience trauma, but yet I still found myself in addiction. Um, but there's also people who grow up in homes like yourself that don't experience addiction and don't do multiple prison sentences like you and I have. Um, so there's no there's always exceptions to the rule. And it's 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 different for everybody. But I know it was tough for you growing up. And and I know that over this period of time, I mean, you started to experience death in your family right in front of your eyes at, a, at again, a very young age. What were you, eight years old? What was that like? Right. So, you know, just a little bit before that, even, you know, my mom and dad had divorced at that point. So now I was living only with uh, my mother under my grandmother's roof. She owned the home. My uncle lived in the garage. He was strung out on drugs, you know, um, I'm only eight years old. This is a type of household. If you could picture this, my uncle would give me Playboy magazines, penthouse magazines. I'm an eight-year-old kid. I'm hiding them under the rugs, under the carpet, <laughs> right? Um, and everybody, it's it's kind of like a total chaos type of thing. My mom loved me. She always was there for me, uh, did the best that she could do. And, but we lived under grandma's roof and at that point, you know, my grandmother got really sick with tuberculosis. Uh, my mom was in a bad state of mind at this time. And I remember going to the hospital with my mom and I brought my grandmother a little toy that I had gotten out of the, the quarter machine at like the grocery store where a kid puts a quarter in, he gets the little ball with the toy in it, mm -hmm. right? And I remember taking that to my grandmother. She's laying in the hospital bed and she's talking to me, but nobody could understand what she's saying. Um, and at that point, one of the nurses told me, don't hand that to your grandma. She's going to think it's a cookie or something and eat it. Well, as I'm standing there, I'm holding my grandmother's hand next to her hospital bed and she flatlines and dies in front of me. And I remember being scared and they're pulling all of us out of the room trying to revive her. And at eight years old, um, that was the first part of abandonment that happened in my life. My first experience with loss, right? And that's just your first one. There's, 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 there's more to come. Yes. Um, and when, abandonment, man, we talk, when we talk about abandonment we both work in recovery today, and when we share abandonment and we talk about the issues and the characteristics that we adopt, um, from experiencing abandonment as a child, I mean, there's so many that play into, um, you know, how we are as adults. There's just, there's just so many of them. So your grandma dies. And during this period of time, you know, that was the main structure that you had in the house was your grandma. And then your mom is struggling. She's going through some things and she leaves at this time. She she bounces out. Is that what so happens? So now, I mean, at this point, it's even worse, right? Mom's got it together, kind of. But when grandma dies, that's her mother. Now it's off to the races, right? My mom's uh, struggling with depression, pain. Um, and at this point, there's no home. Grandma's gone. So we don't have a home to live in anymore. And mom's off doing drugs, drinking. And she decides to take me to my father's. Um, 
at eight years old, I can remember her driving me to my dad's and I was kicking and screaming and hitting the windows and I was scared and I did not want to go to live with my dad. I just wanted to stay with my mom and I didn't understand why she was taking me and leaving me with my dad. Yeah. And so we don't understand that. I mean, it's, it's such a, I mean, it's hard to process those things. I mean, mom, mom leaves, takes you to live with your dad. You don't want to go. Grandma dies. You're holding her hand right in front of you. And then you show up at your dad's house. So what type of interaction have you, have you had with your dad up until that point after the divorce? So, you know, my dad's always uh, been a really hard worker that I could say. Um, my dad wasn't so much into the criminal side of things. I mean, he did sell a little weed back in the day and stuff like that, but he had his own business. He owned a construction company. Um, I mean, let's be honest, back then, who didn't sell a little bit of weed? Right. Yeah. yeah we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking the 90s, early 90s, yeah. right? So um, really, at the end of the day, he owned his own masonry company, A. Frakes Masonry. He was a hard worker. He owned his own vehicles, trucks, right? And uh, he tried to provide for me the best that he could. And, you know, what I could say it was like being with him, um, he believed in God. Mm -hmm. He read the Bible. Um, he, he did anything he could to be selfless and help other people around him. Um, that's one of the ways that I picked that trade up, honestly, at such a young age. I remember going to Disneyland with my dad. And we would go quite often, Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm. It's familiar with people in California. And uh, we'd go play the games and win stuffed animals. And I would get really excited. I thought the stuffed animals were for me, right? And my dad said, no, son, we're going to go give these to the less fortunate kids that might need them, right? So he would find kids that were in wheelchairs that were at Disneyland, or maybe they're on crutches or... You know, it, it didn't matter who they were, but he would have me give them to these kids. So that taught me right at an early age what it was like to be giving and be selfless and help others. And be of service. So, you know, that's ultimately right. what the whole program recovery is all about is getting out of self, being of service. And, and ultimately, we always talk about recovery, God's will. And it's always the question, well, if you got to live in God's will, how do you identify? And the easiest way to identify that is to be of service, be selfless and help others. And that's what it's all about. And so it, it's pretty decent with dad up until, you know, you start smoking weed with dad, right? What yeah. was that like? 12 years old. You know, um, well, at first I didn't start smoking weed with dad. It started off as, you know, it was the cousins in the house, right? Then it was uh, I'm sneaking a dad's roach box and stealing a half joint out of there or something, right? Now I'm puffing it on the side. But dad realizes real quick something's off with me. And he asked me, are you getting high? And one of the things my dad always taught me was never lie, right? Mm -hmm. Don't lie to him. Don't steal. Like those were his morals that he truly believed in later to find out I'm going to do all those things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but with that, I, I was honest with him, man. And the first thing he told me is, all right, son, I'd rather you smoke weed under my roof in my house with me than go out and smoke it with somebody else that you don't know. At least I know you're safe here in my home doing it. Mm -hmm. Right. Cool dad. Yeah. Yeah. Shout yeah. out to all the cool dads out there. Shout out to my dad. Yeah. And so you start smoking weed in the house with dad and dad starts to get sick though. Right. Yeah. So at this point, um, 
you know, I don't know really what's going on, but my dad's starting to get sick. Um, things are going on in his life. We end up moving from up in the mountains in Anza, California to Riverside, California. My dad, he's still working and everything, but along the way he met a, a, a lady named Cindy that he picked up. She got out of prison and they were together for a while. And they had a relationship and she was from Riverside, California. So we moved there and sooner or later we come to find out that my dad had melanoma skin cancer. Um, and at that point, you know, my dad tried treatment. You know, he, he started doing chemotherapy. And when I said in the beginning that my dad was a huge believer in God, he told me, you know, I'm done doing treatment. Mm. I'm done. If God wants me to live, if it's his will, then he'll heal me. Right. Mm. And uh, so I really believed that because I believed in God as well. And I thought God could heal my dad. Right. Um, and I really believe that God would heal my dad. Uh, and I watched my dad wither away for a year straight, man. And he became skinny. You couldn't understand what he was saying. Um, he just got really, really sick. Right. And I can remember, um, my dad passed away March 20 or excuse me, November 21st. Right. And I was 13 years old, but before that, the night before my dad passed away, I remember going into the room and he was asking me for a t-shirt, right? I went through every single t-shirt in his closet. I kept pulling them out and I asked him, is this the one you want? He said, no. Finally, I got to like one of the last t-shirts. I pulled it out. It said, I love Jesus on it. He smiled really big and said, that's the shirt I want. I put the shirt on my dad. He was rubbing his chest, rubbing the t-shirt, smiling. I kissed him on his forehead and he passed away at 10 a.m. the next morning in my apartment. Mm. So now you got your dad dies, same home as you, right in front of you. You got to watch it for a year. I mean, that's got to be agonizing to see that happen. Your grandma dies while you're holding her hand. Mom's struggling with addiction. And what do we expect? Um, she's doing the best with what she can. And now here we are. Dad's gone. Grandma's gone. Mom's basically gone at this point. And now what? You, you become homeless, right? Right. So at this point, the stepmom, Cindy, was still in the picture. Mm -hmm. the, the girl my dad was dating. She had his truck. She had his apartment. She had all his things. And I was still living in the roof on, or under her roof now at this point because my dad was gone. But somewhere along the line, I guess they called the state on me or something. And, um, you know, one of the weird things, man, that I kind of want to talk about is this abandonment, right? Because before my dad died, I had a, a grandmother named Sophie. I had an Aunt Pam, right? I had all these people that were in my life that loved me. And I went and seen them regularly with my dad. But when my dad died, none of them came to get me. None of them came to help me. Right. And, um, it would be true that I held a lot of resentments towards those people most of my life. Right. Um, so nobody comes to get me. Nobody's looking for me. My dad's gone. And now the state tries to come in the apartment with Cindy and take me away. And at that point I ran away from them. I didn't know who these people were and I was not going with them. So I went and hid on a roof, stayed on a roof all night long. And, um, I came back the next morning and she ended up taking me to 
somebody's house in Riverside, California. It, it was a family um, of Mexican nationals. They didn't speak English. And, you know, she left me with them and said she would be back in a few hours. And this lady did not come back at all. Mm, again, more abandonment. I mean, it's coming from every area of your life. And so she doesn't come back. How long do you live with the Mexican national family? So at this point, I'm living with them and they don't want me there. I'm not their kid. They don't know me. Right. They're doing a favor for Cindy. And at this point now, you know, I've been there. So we're talking my dad dies November 21st. I was there all the way till March 14th, but I wasn't completely there because, you know, I got to stay the night there sometimes. Sometimes I stayed the night on the streets. I would steal neighbors' bags of cans so I could go get money for food because I would recycle the cans. I would steal pit bull puppies out of people's backyards and sell them for 50 bucks a pop because in that neighborhood it was really gang infested at the time um and they liked to fight dogs so anybody that could find a pit bull puppy you were selling it quick mm. right so i found a new hustle right now i'm learning to steal now i'm learning the way of the streets um just doing what i have to do to survive at 13 years old and so when we talk about step six and the willingness to remove the objectionable and let go of those character defects, and the reason why they're so hard to shake is because for a long time, those character defects hold an extreme amount of value, especially when you're trying to survive at 13 years old. When you're stealing to survive and it's working, you're getting away with it and you're getting money and you're able to put some food into your stomach. Now that those character defects have such an extreme amount of value, but just like anything, they work until they don't work anymore. So now you end up leaving that house and now you're you're homeless on the streets of Riverside at what, 13, 14 years old? 13 years old. On my 14th birthday, I was able to contact my mom in Parker, Arizona. Uh, I do not even remember how we got a hold of her. So to tell you about that is that uh, now I'm no longer in Riverside, California. I end up in Parker, Arizona with my mom again. And I'm 14 years old and I'm struggling. I'm depressed, dude. I've had all this loss and abandonment in my life. And all I needed at that point was some love, right? I needed some love. I needed some attention. I needed somebody to show me they cared about me. Yeah, um, and it just wasn't there. It just wasn't there. I mean, my mom loved me. She cared about me. Like I said, this is no way, shape or form to bash my mom. She was doing the best she could with what she had because she was struggling with the same loss of her mom and, you know, all the things going on in, in her life as well. Um, so at this point I move in with mom and I have a stepfather that's very abusive. Right. Um, and uh, now for me being a young child that's struggling, now I start thinking about suicide. I don't want to live anymore. Um, you know, now I'm in a household where this guy, instead of just showing me love, was, you know, mentally abusive, physically abusive, um, and that I just needed help, right? And at that point, um, I tried to hang myself at 14 years old. Um, and that wouldn't be the first time you attempted suicide either. No, it wouldn't be the last either, right? Um, because I felt empty, man. And all I wanted to do at that point, I felt like if I could kill myself, then I could go be with my dad again, right? Mm. Um, 
or I wouldn't have to deal with all this pain and all this struggling that I'm going through at 14 years old that no child or teenager should ever have to go through. And it's tough, man. And so we just look at the full scope of everything you've been through at this point that leads all the way up until attempting suicide and trying to hang yourself and doing all these things. And the addiction starts to get worse. You start to use harder drugs during this period of time. So, yeah, at 14 years old, um, I got my first tattoo and I did meth and lost my virginity all in the same night. Right. So is that the trifecta? That was the trifecta, oh, brother. OK. All right. Brother. So at that point, now I'm thinking like, "Ooh, I got a tattoo. I'm cool. Super I hard. did some drugs, dude. And this girl liked me. Big right. Oh. I just had sex, man. Doing drugs. Doing yeah. the most. Doing the most. I finally so, have arrived. Yeah, I finally have arrived, man. And I just remember that first time that I did meth, um, I felt something inside of me change, right? Um, I felt all that pain and I felt accepted by the people around me, right? Um, women were starting to like me, right? I felt better about myself. I wasn't depressed inside at this point while I was using so we like the effect produced by drugs and alcohol, and that's why we do it. Um, but the unfortunate part about it, if you will, is the negative consequences that start to rain down upon our life. And very shortly after that, you start to experience some negative consequences. And at, what are we talking, 15 years old, you find yourself in juvenile prison? Well, so before that, though, uh, this is kind of, of an important part of the story as well, is when I tried to hang myself. You know, I went to the Palo Verde Mental Hospital in Tucson mm. for like eight months, right? Um, so my first encounter with jail right there was I hurt a staff member, man. I assaulted a staff member at the hospital. They arrested me and I sat a night in jail. And I remember these caseworkers for a behavioral health center telling me that I was a lost cause. The state will not stand, spend any more money on me. They filled me full of a bunch of uh, medications, mm. like a lab rat, right? I was on all kinds of meds. They said I had all these try problems. Try this, try this, try this. That doesn't work. Well, try mm -hmm. this, try this. And then at the end of the day, they tell me I'm a lost cause and get rid of me, right? Yeah, you're done. You're doomed. Yeah. Like another, another experience. No, I just feel like at this point, there's no help for me. Maybe this is what I am. Maybe this is what my life's all about and it's never going to change, right? So I start to become okay with that life now this is what it is and this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna be a criminal i'm gonna steal cars i'm gonna do everything i can so at that point i end up going to juvenile prison at 15 years old so what was that like i mean we always talk about you know we both been to prison we know what that's like but i'll tell you right now i don't have experience with juvenile hall or juvenile prison but from what I've heard from the many men I've had the privilege of working with and experience in the groups I've taught and all these different things is juvenile prison can be harder than state prison and adult prison. Absolutely. It was like gladiator school there, right? As soon as you come in the doors, um, they're telling you to pick a cell to go to at five o'clock and three people are going to jump you and beat the shit out of you, right? And the reason they do that is to see if you'll fight back for one or to see if you're going to go to the guards and tell. And mm -hmm. then if you do that, you're in real big trouble, right? So they're just kind of, it's like uh, we talk about that in prison where they give you a heart check when you get there, just see where your heart's at. So you, 
you know, if they could take advantage of you, if you're going to talk to the cops, if you're going to rat. And they kind of size you up right then and there in that moment. And, you know, for the first time, 15 years old, walking into juvenile prison, um, even when we're older, my first time walking into state prison, the fear that's associated with that, you hear all these stories and then a lot of them are true. And you're like, oh, shit, if you're like me and I'm not I'm not a confrontational type dude, it's like, oh, man, like this is happening right now. And I mean, you're not the biggest dude. I mean, <laughs> and either am I. And so I, I man, that had to be so tough just to go through that. And I want to talk more about just what that experience was like, because there was much more of the institutions to come. So what what else happened when you were there after that first night? What else happened while you were in juvenile prison? So what was that like? Man, it was um, it was challenging, right? I already had a lot of anger built up inside from all the things in my past. And uh, it was constant fighting, constant violence, constant chaos. I even remember a time where there was a kid there that was 17, almost 18. He was about 350 pounds. And he was going to try to rape me at that point. And I stabbed him with a pencil. And they take you to the hole in juvenile prison. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about how it works. You only go there for three to five hours and then they bring you right back. They moved me cells. So I was no longer in the same cell with that guy, but I was still in the same population of kids with him. So I still had to face him every day. Um, It was constant fighting and you always had to protect yourself and stick up for yourself. And I could tell you that I went into juvenile prison with an eight month sentence and you had to go through levels in there. There's phases, right? There's was phases. it the t-shirts where you get different shirts yeah, or you, is it lanyards? You start off with different colored shirts. You start off as a freshman with a yellow shirt, right? You work up to a senior. It's kind of like high school. You mm-hmm. got to go all the way up, right? And the sooner you do that, the sooner you get released, right? Yeah. So if you're a senior, by the time your eight month sentence is, sentence is up, you get released. But I could never get past a yellow t-shirt, man. So I Is that your up- favorite color? You like yellow? <laughs> Must be. <laughs> Must be. Uh, I could never do it, man. So an eight-month sentence ended up landing me from 15 until I was 17 years old. I finally made it, right? I finally made it. And I could tell you, even though I was in prison, my mom came to visit me one time, man. And I felt so sad just sitting in there remembering, like, nobody would show up for me. Nobody wanted to be a part of my life. The only people that showed up for me, really, was some old... uh high school friends and I'm still friends with them to this day. So I definitely want to say a shout out to Aaron and angel shout out Aaron and angel. Yeah. They, uh, they wrote me letters while I was in juvenile prison and they were the same age as me, right? We went to school together. Um, so, so you get out when you're in, you're 17 years old, you get out. And when you get out, you immediately go where you go to Texas. I moved to Texas with my dad's dad, your grandfather, so my grandfather uh, Wayne. And I had only met this guy one time in my life because he did 20 years, 25 years for second degree murder. And he had been in and out of the prison system his whole entire life. So my dad never even really knew him. Um, but at the end of the day, he's the only one that showed up and said, I'll take you. I had nowhere else to go. So you show up, you're Texas, into Texas, you're 17 years old, you just turned an eight-month juvenile prison sentence into two years, right? Constant fighting every day at a young age, everything you've experienced. And when you guys hear this, it's just like, wow. And when you hear the end of this story and you hear part two and you experience 
um, along with all the listeners, you see the the miracle. And I've had the privilege of being along for the ride every step of the way. Um, it's just undeniable how God works and the program works when you line your actions with positivity and you put that out there, just the promises and the gratitude that comes with it. Um, it's just undeniable. And so you, you end up when you're 17, you're living out with your grandfather. You spent his whole life in prison. You've only met him one time. And it doesn't take you very long before you're back in juvenile prison. Yeah, so uh, my dad did leave me a little bit of money I didn't know about, right? I, I ended up finding out about it. So when I, when I got out, my grandfather helped me attain the money. And I bought my first car. But I was on parole in the state of Texas, and I, I started smoking weed and drinking and getting fucked up again, and I absconded right away, man. I had only been out maybe a couple months, and uh, it didn't take very long for me to get pulled over in that new car with no license, and I have a, a felony warrant in the state of Arizona, and they come, marshals come all the way to Texas and come take me in shackles on a plane and fly me back to Arizona to stay in juvenile prison till my 18th birthday. Oh, they're trying to catch you riding dirty. Oh, yeah. Oh, they caught you riding they dirty. They caught me. I ran a red light. <laughs> so you're running a red light. I mean, we're not the sharpest tools in the shed, I'll tell you that, but we think we are. And so 17 years old, you're shackled on a plane back to juvenile prison. And, you know, I'm going to tell you the type of attitude I really had at that point. Um, I could remember being shackled on the plane and everybody was looking at me like I was some, you know, murderer or something crazy. Like, like right? Con Air? Con Air. I'm the only one on the plane shackled. They call, and me, they call me Johnny 23. Exactly. <laughs> hey, I remember this is how salty I was. This is how angry I was at life and everybody else around me. I remember telling the stewardess, can I get some peanuts? They didn't give me none. And I said, bitch, I can't get no peanuts in here. <laughs> right? Like, that's how I was, man. I was just a troubled kid, man. And so you end up 17. Now you're back. So you got to stay just about another year. What? Let me ask you this. What did it feel like when you arrived back at the same juvenile prison? And you're wearing a yellow shirt again, I assume. So I didn't hit the same prison. Oh, they sent, they sent me to a different one. I started out in Eagle Point. And this is pretty cool part of my story as well, right, is because remember my first juvenile sentence, I was the first 15 kids to show up to Eagle Point Prison and open it up when I was 15 years old. Um, so they send me to Adobe Mountain as a violator at this point, and it's even more off the hook. Um, I've heard stories about Adobe Mountain. It's so, no joke. yeah, it was no joke. Um, full of gangs. Full of gangs. You're talking kids that literally are stabbing, shootings, drive-bys, all that. And so you show up there and it's just, again, here we are. And you sit there till you're 18 years old. And what, do you get released right on your 18th birthday? I got released on my 18th birthday. And uh, at that point, I went right back to Texas, right? My car was out there. My grandpa was out there. And he'd been in the prison system, so... He knew I needed help, right? Um, but once again, man, my family is just, uh, the odds are stacked against me, man, because everybody in my family has had some type of past trauma or drug addiction or drug abuse. Yeah, and so when we think about that, it's like, I had no shot. 
And even if I wanted to do right and I wanted to do these things, you know, recovery is about it's a team. It's a team sport. Recovery is a team sport. We got to do it together. I have to be very particular with the people I let in my circle. I'm susceptible to negativity. So I have to make sure that the people around me won't co-sign my bullshit, will hold me accountable. And when I'm down, they pick me up, man. And and I got to stay with the herd. And if I don't have those types of people around me, the chances of me doing anything different are very slim. I, you know, my parents always used to say, you know, um, you know, tell me who your friends are and who you hang with and I'll tell you who you are. And, you know, that's what it looks like. And so ultimately you're out in Texas for, after you get out, um, you know, when you're 18 years old, you're out in Texas for how many more years? I'd, I'd say about three or four years, um, at this point. And what was that time like during that three or four years you're in Texas? Cause ultimately you end up coming back out to Arizona. Yeah. Right. But what's that time period like for you in Texas? So the time period in Texas, um, this is where my addiction goes from bad to worse, the progressiveness of our disease. Right. Sure. And this is where I progress into a chronic addict at this point. And remember, when we talk about chronic for all the listeners out there, like chronic, like clinically means terminal. Right. And you're going to die from it. Right. But to any alcoholics or addicts, the ones that listen to this show, right? And, the, you know, even the ones that are not, right? But the, the point is, and what I'm getting at is chronic, the easiest way I could explain that is when the basic necessities of life become secondary, if at all. And I'm talking about food, shelter, water, sex, the basic necessities of life, those get pushed to the side and our drug of choice or getting high becomes the sole purpose. And that is the priority and that's what chronic looks like. So this is where you kind of step over into the chronic stage. Absolutely. So... You know, I'm doing well for a while. I I have my little two-seater sports car, oh, right? two-seater? Yeah, two-seater. I'm okay. thinking I'm flossing. 18 oh, that, years that old. Mazda Miata? Uh, Pontiac Fiero. Oh, the Fiero. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Engine in the back, right? Okay. So, um, at this point, you know, I, I'm able to hold a job, but I just start smoking weed, Um lots and lots and lots of weed man i'm buying a half ounce of weed a day i'm getting fucked up i'm drinking i'm getting completely toasted every night and i get to the point where my grandfather's like you can't stay here no more you gotta go yeah you sorry brother you don't gotta go home but you can't stay here right now i'm in texas and i only have the friends that i've met along the way like from working at whataburger at my job and i smoke weed with that guy right like um and, uh, you know, I'm starting to meet friends. I got a friend, Keith and Jason, man, still friends with those guys to this day. Absolutely. Uh, blessings in my life. Those guys right there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I start to use hard drugs again. Now I'm using meth. Now I'm using ecstasy. Um, but now not only that, I become a cocaine drug dealer in Fort Worth, Texas. And that's where I meet my first baby mama who I'm with to this day right now Uh at this point, uh, Uh Colleen. Shout out Colleen. Yes, ma'am. Love Uh you. And uh, so at this point, man, we're, we get in a relationship. I'm the drug dealer. I'm the plug. I meet her coming to her friend's house, selling drugs to them. Right. So at this point, you know, I'm really good at oh, selling young, drugs young Chapo. and hustling in the streets. Uh-huh. Um, I'm carrying a pistol. Well, you've been doing it your whole life. Yeah, I'm I'm carrying a pistol at this point. I'm not scared of the streets. I'm not scared of people. And, you know, I don't care about harming people around me. Whatever I could do, if I had to rob you to get money, that's what I would do. 
Um, but at this point, I'm selling drugs. Things aren't that out of control. Um, and I'm just using moderately. And, and, you know, just to bring it back is somewhere along the line, I link back up with grandpa and grandpa is doing drugs. So now grandpa has me, he's buying cocaine off of me right now. I'm the plug. I have all this drugs. Grandpa's buying drugs off me. Grandma's buying drugs off me. And, uh, I remember a guy I met, um, at this point we were young. Um, Colleen had cheated on me. While I did 30 days in jail for boosting from Walmart. Oh, shout out to the boosters. Yep. So, uh, you know, she was young. We were young. Um, And we hadn't been together very long, right? But I took that as uh, it really hit me hard. And I remember leaving and uh, she was pregnant at the time. I had gotten Colleen pregnant and I left and I was drunk one night. And I was around a guy named Ricky, and I'll never forget, man. He always shot heroin and cocaine. He mixed it together. He was always around us. He drank. He ate Xanax. But that was my thing. I drank and ate Xanax, right? Um, But at this point, I felt bad inside. I hated my whole entire life. You know, my girl just cheated on me. I, I felt like every woman in my life had done me wrong. And I, I seen that needle, man. And I was like, you know what? I want to try that, right? Mm-hmm. A Belushi. I sure did it, man. Mm-hmm. And that's what changed. That's where I'm talking about the whole chronic addict came in. Because at that point, I got hooked on the needle. I started shooting heroin every single day. Now I'm sharing needles with my grandmother at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're shooting heroin and cocaine together. And, you know, I bring it back to Colleen. We get together. We have our baby, our first, my oldest daughter, Hannah, who's about to turn 19 right now. She was born the day after my birthday. And I have pictures of back then where I'm holding her on a full nod. I'm nodded out holding my daughter. And that's the only memories I have of being with her, right? It's like I couldn't be a father. I couldn't pick up the pieces. I was no good to Colleen. I got her strung out on drugs, right? And, uh, so now she's running around the city shooting dope with me. And it really got to a point to where I, I landed all the way next to the railroad tracks on the east side of Fort Worth, Texas. And I was sleeping next to a bridge in the railroad tracks and I was stealing car stereos, busting windows out of cars and selling the stereos for 20 bucks just so I could get well. Mm. Just give me 20. That's it. I'm pioneer deck. Even 10 might work I'll on take, some days. Yeah, I even take a 10 piece right now. I mean, God, and that's where it takes us, man. And it takes us there every time. And, you know, the crazy part, why we always talk about, you know, it's centering in our mind, man, is because I it's a thinking problem. Why? Because I think that this time when I pick up, it'll be different. I won't be homeless again. I won't have to steal. I'll be able to stop before I'm dose sick. I won't violate probation this time. I'll be able to get away with it. I'll be able to manipulate. I'll be able to lay my, lay, lie my way out of it. But the facts are and the data that we've collected shows that we've never been able to do those things. This isn't going to be any different. And so it goes all bad. And uh, ultimately, you know, you end up having to move and you end up moving back to Arizona. You have to get away. You got nothing. You've lost everything. And it takes everything from us every time. And the big book talks about making the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. 
and you find your way back in Arizona. And ultimately, that trip back to Arizona lands you your first prison sentence. And I'm going to cut part one uh, right here. I want to stop right here. I just want you to soak everything in. If you could really think about what it was like for, for Justin and everything that he's been through. If you've listened to this and you paid attention, you've absorbed it, to be where he is at this point, living by the railroad tracks, coming back to Arizona, ultimately landing back in prison, which that's where we'll pick up part two. That is the beginning of this last prison sentence is the beginning of the miracle. And the miracle and the transformation that takes place in this man's life is just, and man, I just don't even have the words for it. And if anyone knows me, I'm a talker. And when I get speechless, it's it's for a reason. And the part two is just, uh, the way it ends is going to just be speechless for everyone. So please tune into part two. Part two will be dropping in two days. Please, please tune into part two. You Trust me, you don't want to miss it.